providing real solutions for real industry challenges. Welcome to FNF Unplugged, the talk of the title industry. Well, thanks to everyone for listening here today, uh, another installment of FNF Unplugged. And we're very happy to have back with us today, uh, Andy Walden. Andy is the uh, Vice President of Enterprise Research and Strategy at Black Knight. And uh, we had him as a guest back in the spring. And uh, as we discussed at that time, we thought it'd be awfully good to have him back here uh, in the autumn. Uh, And Andy, thanks so much for joining us here again today. You bet. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. And, you know, I think, you know, just to get into it, because so little has happened since we talked six months ago, (laughs) you know, with so much to discuss in this turbulent market, uh, why don't we start with home affordability? When when we talked in the spring, home affordability was a hot topic in both the private and public sectors. And despite some private and public initiatives, it appears to have gotten worse. I mean, how drastic is the change in affordability from February uh, to now here in uh, the middle of November? And and what markets are, seem to be suffering more and which one's less? That's a big question right now, right? And, and if we look at affordability, we've seen a little bit of improvement over the last week or so with that, that latest CPI number coming in. You've seen... 30-year rates ease, and, and maybe ease is a little bit of a, a light word for what we've seen. We've seen them pull back by about a third of a percent. But despite that improvement in 30-year rates, if if you look at home affordability out there in the market, it takes $880 more in principal and interest to, to purchase the average home than it did at the same time last year. That's a 66% rise in, in a single year in terms of just outgoing expenditure to afford the average price home. In October, it was even more than that. It was a 71% rise year over year. That is the largest single year rise that we've ever seen, dating back 50 years, all the way through the 80s, all the way through the 70s, all the way through the Volcker era. That's the largest single year rise uh, that, that we've ever seen. So, so massive pressure being put on from an affordability standpoint. And it's certainly better than it was in October but still worse than it was at, at this point in, in the peak of the market in 2006, worse than any point in the last 37 years outside of the month of October and early November. Maybe the more poignant way to look at it in terms of, of some of the pressures that we're seeing on prices and, and purchase volumes out there in the market is, is to look at it from a buying power perspective, right? That kind of resonates more with, with folks out there in the market. If you look at buying power over the last year, it's down roughly 40%. And what that means is for your budget, right? If your budget allowed you to buy a $400,000 home last year, now that same out-of-pocket expense allows you to shop in the 250 range, right? If you were shopping in the eights last year, now you're shopping in the fives, right? And so that's exactly why we're seeing downward pressure on prices and downward pressure on volumes out there in the market. You had asked what markets are seeing the largest impacts. Well, it's really being seen universally across the country, right? Every major market is less affordable uh, than its long run average. But there are certainly some that are stretched a little bit further than others, right? There are 10 markets out there where it takes twice the share of median household income than it traditionally does. Los Angeles is a good example of that, right? We all know that LA is an expensive market. It's an unaffordable market. I'm not telling anybody anything they don't know. But historically in LA, it takes a little over a third, 35% of the median household income to afford the the principal and interest payment on the, the median home purchase. Right now, it's 77%. And, and obviously, obviously, you cannot qualify for a mortgage with a front end payment to income ratio of, of 77%. So certainly stretched out there in LA, Las Vegas is in that same boat, Phoenix, 
Tampa, San Diego, Miami, all in that same category where it takes twice the normal share of income uh, to afford the average home. Now, what's interesting among some of those markets, right? We've mentioned some there on the West Coast, some kind of in the sand states, some uh, along the, the southeastern part of the country. They're reacting very differently from a price and a volume perspective, right? We all know the West Coast has started to see prices come off their peaks. Phoenix and Las Vegas are in that list, and they saw among the largest single-month price declines in, in September. So you're certainly seeing prices correct out there in the West Coast, and you're seeing inventory kind of rebuild in those areas that's allowing for that. When you look at the Tampas and Miamis, they're certainly just as stretched as some of those other markets, but you're seeing prices hold strong in those areas because you have that migratory inflow that's holding inventories low. You have strong inventory deficits, and it's allowing prices to remain relatively strong. So again, almost universally seeing impacts of affordability across the country, how much they're, they're impacted and how prices are acting certainly varies in, in different areas across the country. And with that background, uh, you know, first-time home buyers are so critical because they enable other people then to sell their homes and then move up. Uh, so mm -hmm. it starts sort of a domino effect. I mean, where are we then? I mean, I, I think you know you've touched on it, obviously, but but those first-time home buyers—they're just not out there at this point, are they? Really, everybody's being pinched, but first-time home buyers certainly more so than others, right? When you look at first-time home buyers, they've been hit a couple different ways early in the pandemic, and, and we all know first-time home buyers rely more on that FHA type financing to purchase their homes. And what was happening in the heat of the housing market in, in late 2020 and throughout 2021 was that those FHA offers were kind of being pushed to the side of the table, right? Folks wanted those cash offers. They wanted non-contingent. They wanted larger down payment offers. They wanted offers that weren't going to be as strict on the, on the property, right? And so because those first-time home buyers rely more on that FHA funding, they were having challenges out there buying in the market. Now it's really an affordability equation, right? If you look at debt-to-income ratios of, among those first-time home buyers that are out there buying, they're the highest that they've been in, in 10 years. So certainly being stretched. Now the first-time home buyer share maybe hasn't fallen as much as you would expect given all the different dynamics. It's down about 2% from where it was. Um, but you're certainly seeing some dynamic shifts, right? You're seeing first-time home buyers stretched and you're seeing the types of products that they're using, right? And the down payments that they're using to participate in the market, they're not as much FHA as they have been in the past. They're moving over into that GSE space. So there's been a little bit of a flip-flop in the types of mortgages that they're using. But certainly, as you mentioned, those folks are getting stretched out there in the market right now. I want to add here too, uh, Andy uh, hosts uh, a tremendous monthly, uh, or co-host, I'll, I'll say, tremendous monthly uh, broadcast uh, with this Mortgage Monitor. And anybody who doesn't listen to Mortgage Monitor, I think, is being seriously remiss in how they're planning and as to uh, what they're doing in the business uh, place. But correct me if I'm wrong, when the, on the last Mortgage Monitor, you talked about the growth in uh, home prices, and you talked about that it would probably be February before we'd see a real flattening and a stop in the growth of home prices. Am I remembering that correctly? Does that sound uh, like what you said or am I misremembering? Well, so if you look at prices, it really depends on the market, right? We've started to see, I think we were probably talking about the annual home price growth rate at that point, right? And, and you've seen so much build in prices over the last six months or so that you're going to continue to see on an annualized basis, those headline rates that are out there that are at roughly 10% up year over year, those are going to continue to run positive just simply because of all the growth that we saw in late 2021 and early 2022. If you look under uh, underneath those kind of headline annual price growth rates, what you see is that prices are actually starting to come off their peak already 
um, in some of these markets, right? San Jose, San Francisco, Seattle have already seen prices come off of their 2022 peak by 10%. You've got roughly a quarter of markets that are off by 5%. So you're already starting to see those prices react. But because we saw such strong growth late last year, you're still seeing annual home price growth rates that are positive, right? San Francisco is is the one exception to that where annual price gains are, are now negative, right? They're now down from where they were at the same point last year. And I think we'll add to that list as, as we move forward. But nationally speaking, certainly prices coming off their peak, but you're still seeing strong positive annual home price gains because of those lagging results. And then talking about going into next year, because uh, say here we are in the fourth quarter, so people are doing their planning or they're doing the revisions to their planning uh, into the first and second quarters, uh, particularly in title and settlement. And, and I say at the conference where I'm attending, I talked to someone who does a lot of business in one of the southeastern states, and he said his business has fallen off. We were getting about 145 orders a day, and now we're getting 11 orders a day. With those sort of trends, I mean, what does this sort of forebode for the first half of uh, next year with, you know, a slowing of home buying coupled with sort of a virtually non-existent refinance market? And, and how low would rates need to go to really rekindle any meaningful refinance activity? It's a good question. And the, the simple answer is that we lost the refinance market a long time ago, right? It, it's it's kind of hard to pinpoint yeah, yeah. exactly where each segment of the market uh, kind of went by the the side of the road along the way, because we've seen such a sharp rise in interest rates this year. But if you kind of look back throughout the year and you look specifically at the individual segments, right? So if we look at rate term refinance activity, we lost that at about three and a half percent, right? We all know how low rates were in 2020, 2021, how much refinance activity and how much the, the outstanding mortgage universe just transitioned into a very low rate market. We lost that refinance, that traditional rate term refinance volume at about a three and a half percent interest rate. And we all know that we're roughly twice that level right now, right? Cash outs were a little bit more resilient. We lost them at, at about four and a half to five percent interest rates. The dynamics there are very different because folks are looking at how much does it cost to utilize my equity more so than than who simply who's in the money for a refinance and, and reducing their interest rate. So those borrowers stay more resilient in the market and we'll likely pick them up a little bit quicker on the way down for a couple of different reasons, right? One, our, our psyche has changed about, about what a, a good interest rate is at this point. And secondly, 30-year rates really ran out in front of short-term interest rates. And so those cash-out borrowers are, are looking at the dynamic of what can I get for a cash-out interest rate versus what can I get for a HELOC interest rate? And at the time we lost them, HELOC interest rates had, hadn't really risen yet, but 30-year rates were rising in, in anticipation of, of those uh, Fed moves. Uh, now we're starting to see those short-term rates rise, right? And so on the way back down, we could see a little bit more, uh, we could pick up a little bit more volume higher up in that rate ladder. And then on the purchase side, as, as you mentioned, we, we lost that one as well. Um, those started to go by the wayside at about 5% interest rates, right? That's when purchase volume really started to fall off and prices started to react out there across the country. And again, we're a percent half above that right now. So there's some potential if we see some some meaningful rate movement that perhaps some of those borrowers that have originated over the last few months that are in that six to 7% range, we could pick up some marginal volume. But in terms of picking up significant volume of, of originations, both on the refinance and on the purchase side, we would need to see some pretty meaningful pull down in interest rates at this point. We, we saw an example of that last week, right? Rates moved by a third of a percent and you really didn't see this wave of activity in any front, right? On the purchase side, refi, cash out refi, we didn't see any meaningful movement there because we're so far so far outside of the window right now with, with interest rates that we're going to need to see some some meaningful moves. 
So what does that mean for 2023? Well, if, if you look at kind of the fourth quarter of this year, we're expecting, and I think you're, you're, the, the folks that you're talking to are, are right there in terms of kind of the, the decline overall from where they were last year to this year. If you look at originations for the fourth quarter of, of this year, we'll likely set an all-time low, right? We'll, we'll likely be talking about the lowest number of, of mortgages originated since the turn of the century. We will likely set a new record low in the first quarter of next year, just simply because of the seasonality in the purchase market and that seasonal downward swing that we'll see there. And then you'll see some modest building as we move throughout 2023, but it's really going to be again dependent on what what the Fed does here, right? What's what's their next move? How high do they push? How how high do they hold? And, and where do mortgage rates go from there? Well, and you talk about the psyche uh, in, in regard to interest rates. My first mortgage, uh, which I got in the late 70s, was six and a half percent, and didn't think that was a bad rate at the time. And the first loan that I actually closed as a uh, title and settlement agent was a VA loan at 16.5%. The seller had to pay four <laughs> points to get that. And we had a huge refinance glut when rates dropped to 13. So, uh, yes, it, a, a lot of it is just a matter of perspective and, and how one needs to compare uh, yeah. as to where we have sometimes been in the past. Yeah, I, I think it's it's some of its psyche, some of its mortgage market makeup, right? And and that's one thing we'll be facing as a headwind is that we've we've seen our active mortgage universe refinance into very low rates, right? And so that plays a part in it. And part of it has to do with just simple affordability out there, right? You can have a, a the last time affordability was at this level, right? We're at sub seven percent rates right now. Last time affordability was at this level, we were at 13% rates because we've seen such extreme price growth over the last 20 years out there in the mortgage market. So a number of different dynamics, right? There's the psychological, there's the overall mortgage universe dynamic, and then there's this affordability dynamic where home prices have simply outpaced the growth of, of incomes. And so from an affordability side on the purchase uh, market, we, we just can't sustain those types of interest rates that we've seen in the past because we've seen extreme home price growth in comparison to income growth out there in the market. Well, and to your point, uh, as Karl Marx once said, and I love to throw Karl Marx into these presentations, uh, <laughs> but, to, but to paraphrase him, money determines everything. <laughs> so uh, I think he was right, <laughs> at least in regard to that aspect. But, but you know, uh, also touching on in regard to home prices and where Americans are, I guess if there's some good news, Americans do have significant equity in their homes. But that trend is starting to change, isn't it? And and how fast is that decline in home equity and, and what homeowners in may in fact be underwater on their equity positions? Yeah, and you're absolutely right. Home equity has been one of the bright spots throughout the pandemic. Obviously, home price growth is a double-edged sword, right? We, we just talked about it in terms of home affordability and some of the challenges that it creates there. On the opposite side, it creates massive equity growth for homeowners, and, and despite some of the pullbacks, right? And if you if you look at the corrections in prices that we've seen, especially in some of these more expensive West Coast markets, we have seen total mortgage holder equity drop by about eight and a half percent in the third quarter of this year. If you look at it from a lendable equity perspective, right, the amount that folks could tap into, or the the amount that uh, equity lenders could lend against, that dipped by ten percent in the single quarter as well. So it's coming down quickly, but we're still in an extremely strong position from an equity standpoint as as we stand here today. Right, mortgage holders in the U.S. have about five trillion dollars more equity, so about 46% more equity than we had at the beginning of the pandemic. So we're still in a very sound position, right? And I think it's worth calling out from a, a price growth perspective, even though we're seeing prices come off their peak, we're still up at least 19% in, in every major market across the US. 
Um, so still very strong equity positions out there across the country, but we are seeing some movement and especially on the negative equity front, right? Negative equity roughly doubled in the third quarter of this year. We had fewer than a quarter of a million borrowers underwater entering the, the third quarter. As we exited, we had almost a half a million. So you are starting to see a little bit of that negative equity creep back into the conversation, still historically low. But I think what's important about that negative equity conversation is, is the bifurcation that we're going to see in the market, right? If you look at who's in an underwater position, it's really borrowers that, that purchased over the last 12 months or so, right? There's almost a, a line in the sand in kind of the middle of 2021 right now. So everything that was purchased and, and originated prior to that point is still in an extremely strong equity position. It's really mortgage purchases that took place over the last 12 months or so, and specifically those lower down payment mortgage purchases that are seeing that equity risk. And so again, we're gonna we're gonna see that bifurcation in the mortgage market where there's kind of this pre, it was almost like the great financial crisis, right? We, we talked about everything pre that point and everything past that point. We're gonna kind of see that in the mortgage market as well, right? Uh, more recently originated loans, that's where the negative equity risk is. That's where some of the higher delinquency rates are. You're seeing uh, credit quality and, and makeup differences in this last 12 months that we hadn't seen before uh, either. So kind of this interesting kind of differentiation or dissection in the market from a performance standpoint, from an equity standpoint and on down the line. Well, and you know, and to your point, uh, and I really did not expect to hear much about this from title and settlement agents, but I have talked to several title agents who have actually done short sales here in the last few weeks. And it's just the people that you identified is people who bought the house say nine months ago and uh, they're going to sell the house and it just, the money just isn't there. Now these, again, not a big volume of these short sales, nothing like we saw uh, in the mortgage meltdown yeah. years where we had yeah. short sales happening virtually hourly at almost every title agency. But yes, yeah, some of that is happening. And so the next question, I mean, we have this anomaly. It's a mix of inflation, particularly in food and energy. We have recessionary trends, but we have a relatively low unemployment rate, at least outside of the mortgage uh, business, um, you know, 3.7% uh, in October. Um, some of that has historically driven an uptick in delinquency and default, while other of those conditions have sort of suppressed it. Where are we on delinquency and default rates? And where do those trends seem to be leading us into the first quarter? Yeah, and when, when you look at overall delinquency rates, right, and we just look at where we ended the third quarter of this year, we had a delinquency rate at below 2.8%. We're just a hair off of the all-time low that we sent in, uh, set in May of this year. So very low overall delinquency rates in the market. When you look at new delinquency volumes, the share of borrowers that are that are going from current to delinquent in any given month, we're still down 25% from where we entered the pandemic, and those were at record low levels. So very few borrowers actually becoming delinquent on their mortgage. Now you are hearing rumblings, and, and, there, and there's truth to it that in that FHA space, especially in kind of those middle credit score type buckets, you're starting to see them trend up. And they're, they're trending up broadly in terms of early uh, delinquency rates across the board, but still very, very low in, in terms of overall delinquency rates and new delinquency rates out there in the market. And when you start to look at foreclosure risk and those types of activities, foreclosure referral volume still 40% below pre-pandemic uh, levels. Now, we do still have a little bit of an elevated serious delinquency population from the pandemic, but 80% of those borrowers are still protected from foreclosure as well. So in terms of overall performance, we're on about as strong of ground as we've been historically. Um, same thing with, with mortgage holder equity, outstanding credit quality, arm risk out there in the market, all extremely low right now. So we're in a very strong position. 
But for all of those reasons that, that you mentioned, right, the recessionary risk, rising credit card uh, debt, uh, lower savings rate, the potential for increasing rises in, in uh, unemployment rates and on down the line, I think the expectation is we will continue to see those kind of trickle up uh, over over the next few quarters, we'll start to see some rises in overall delinquency rates, but we're coming off very, very low levels in, in a very stable mortgage market right now. I think that's very good news and uh, to not see those types of things because uh, we don't need to get back into that sort of um, problem where we have bank-owned properties again. And talking about some of these things, and on the last uh, Mortgage Monitor, um, you really talked in, in detail about uh, you know the effects of uh, Hurricane Ian, uh, and and we're all in Florida here, at various in various parts of the state, and you know there's been great concern over climate issues and disasters uh, in the mortgage industry. You know, in my experience, it's been a front and center item now for at least a half dozen years, and even going back uh, beyond that. You know what are both sort of those long term and short term impacts of such events, particularly like Hurricane Ian. And, and a number I saw yesterday, which really surprised me, that uh, in this century, that almost 90% of all the counties in the United States have been subject to some sort of climate disaster that led to some emergency aid. And whether it's fires or floods or hurricanes or tornadoes, whatever it may be, what are the impacts that come into play? And especially when such a densely populated state as Florida gets hit by something like Hurricane Ian. Yeah, and, and you're absolutely right. Climate change and natural disasters, undoubtedly a growing issue in the mortgage and housing markets that, that we're by no means immune to. And, and we've been dedicating it at Black Knight a lot of time and a lot of resources into developing solutions that, that help those in the housing finance ecosystem better understand and model for and make informed decisions around climate change and natural disasters. Uh, one thing that we've done is, is recently released our, our climate and natural hazard risk solution suite to help industry folks uh, identify properties impacted by natural disasters and mitigate future climate related risks. And that really the, the suite provides property level insight into both the impact of current climate events, as well as gauges and helps users manage the likelihood and level of impact for future climate related events as well, right? So two kind of two distinct ways of looking at it. One is, what are the disasters that are happening today? How do we best uh, assist impacted borrowers and assess the damage immediately after a, a disaster event? The second is, how do we attack this climate issue that's a more broad event and look 10, 20, 30 years uh, down the road, right? And and so one of the ways that we've put that disaster data, looking at recent events, as, as you mentioned uh, earlier, was really combining that disaster data, right? So using that geospatial technology, using drone technology, using natural uh, disaster weather service data to identify the, the path of a specific storm, to identify the path of Hurricane Ian. Uh, so we, we implemented that data alongside our or McDash flash data, which is kind of a, a daily mortgage performance data. It's something we've never really had in the mortgage industry, but something we've rolled out in recent years in response to the COVID pandemic, really putting those into action alongside themselves. And, and what that allowed us to do was, you mentioned FEMA counties earlier, right? 90% of all counties in the U.S. have been involved in a disaster. Well, those are fairly wide, right? So if we look at Hurricane Ian, what we see is that there were 2.5 million mortgage properties in those FEMA declared counties. When we actually get into the parcel level detail and get into the path of the storm, we can kind of weed out 80% of, of those homes and say, all right, of those 2.5 million, here's the half a million that were actually in the path of the storm or in the buffer zone of the storm. 
And then we can start to isolate mortgage performance, right? So we can tie that into daily mortgage performance data and say, all right, of those folks that were in the path or the buffer of the storm, how did they perform on their mortgage? How many of those borrowers or what share of those borrowers had made their mortgage payment through the 19th of October, right? And compare that to the month prior and look at folks that had made their mortgage payment last month, but hadn't yet made it this month. And it allows us to kind of say, all right, well, based on all that information, it looks like there'll be about 20 to 25,000 borrowers that'll become delinquent on their mortgage. And you can even isolate which kind of groupings, right? Are those FHA loans? Are those GSC loans? What types of assistance do those borrowers need? So you can get very, very granular in assessing the impacts from these disaster events. And then using that climate data, we can go back more broadly and say, all right, here's my portfolio of loans. What's the five-year, 10-year, 15, 30-year outlook for these loans? What's the likelihood of fire damage? What's the likelihood of a hurricane? We all know that, that these events are happening more frequently. What's the likelihood in any certain period of time? And then what's the loss given default or expected loss in those types of events? So I think as an industry, it's something we need to move more into. It's something we need to lean into. It's something we need to understand more from a risk perspective. When you talk to government agencies, they're, they're always having these conversations, right? How do we understand the impact of climate risk as it pertains to our specific industry? And, and so obviously we're rolling out products and solutions and, and really digging deep into that data to, to understand those impacts better. That just sounds like a hugely, hugely helpful tool for uh, mortgage lenders and for everyone who is tied uh, into the real estate industry generally, for people in realty, people in title and settlement, you know, to be able to uh, understand and sort of uh, wrap their arms around those probabilities in regard to uh, their particular areas. I mean, yeah, we, we don't really have to tell people who live, let's say, in Louisiana that, yes, you get hurricanes. They know they get hurricanes. In fact, in the statistics they released, it, it showed that Louisiana per person, uh, there had been more expenditures in FEMA money in Louisiana than any other state in the union because they get hurricanes in the south and then occasionally they get tornadoes in the north. But, uh, but yeah, that's a, that's a hugely helpful tool. And, you know, and, and say, uh, I, I just want to thank you again for being with us uh, here today. And I you know and I encourage anybody and everybody who listens to this, that if you're not listening to Black Knight's Mortgage Monitor on a monthly basis, you're really missing out on hearing just the types of things that Andy has just been discussing, but more incrementally because it's month by month and it's just a wealth of information. Again, thank you so much for your time today, Andy, and thanks for everyone for listening here to another installment of FNF Unplugged, and we hope that everyone has a great and profitable day. If you have questions, comments, or would like us to feature a specific topic, email fnfeducation at fnf.com. Thanks for downloading FNF Unplugged, a presentation of the FNF family of companies, all rights reserved. This podcast is being provided for informational purposes only. The podcast is not a comprehensive overview of the subject and is not intended to provide legal or financial advice or an endorsement of any product or business. The views expressed by podcast guests are their own, and their appearance on the podcast does not imply any endorsement of them or any entity they represent, including Fidelity National Financial or its directors. Please seek legal or financial advice before taking any action on the matters or products discussed herein.